0: Thank you very much. After this introduction, I've got to live up to (laughs) all that. (laughs) But I feel very privileged to be asked to be here. I feel completely among friends, and thank you very much for asking me. It's it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I thought when I talk about, um, in our talk today, I would like to divide it into three parts. Uh, One, to give a brief background to how... um, Assisted reproductive technologies were legitimized in Shia Iran, which is a theocracy, Uh, and um, how it makes completely sense that it should have been, whereas people, when they hear it, they sort of get completely surprised at how how Iranians are making use of the most advanced biotechnologies uh, in Iran. In a way, this is now a little bit of history, no no longer sort of an interesting topic because assisted reproductive technologies, ARTs, have been in practice in Iran for over 25 years, almost almost from the beginning when Louise Brown was born here in in Europe, the baby, test tube baby. So that is not really a terribly surprising thing, considering that um, Islam is supposed to be a pronatal Uh, religion and favor fertility. Uh, And this is uh, the first part that I will talk a little bit how uh, the Shia uh, ruling clerics resorted to some mechanisms available to Shia Islam which is to Sunni too but to a lesser extent to to allow the use of third party donation because a straightforward IVF donation between a wife and husband is yet another biomedical technology. But third-party donation is a different story, particularly when it comes to Islam and question of lineage, which is very, very important. So I talk a little bit about that. But I want to use that opportunity. Some time ago, I wrote an article saying, really, the full impact of this um, third-party donation in Iran will only be known when the children come of age, because you really don't know. I mean, a couple conceive, go home. Uh, the whole legitimization of third-party donation was based on the uh, argument by the senior clerics that family is very important, and if infertile couples could be allowed to, to have children, then we, are lots, we have lots of happy families, which is what I've been looking at after the initial war, to look at, sort of see, our families really very happy now that they have this third-party donation children. And I'll give you a couple of examples, which is the second part of my talk. I take the example of two women, Iranian women refugees, who had to seek refuge here in the UK as a result of the third-party donation treatment they had gone through. And then the third part, I want to allow a little bit of time for what I have written as a discussion and conclusion to relate it to a larger sort of attitudes and systems and structure in society. And then, of course, we can talk about anything that I've left out. Um, so to, to start with the first part, um, and as many of you know well, and also Nadia two weeks ago talked about how successful the population policies of the Iranian government had been in reducing the population uh, rate of growth, which was very high, 39 Within 10 years, they managed to bring it down to below two points, which was a miracle. And Iran, what, twice, three times now, has won the UN, United Nations Prize Award for Populations and the su- successful policies, how they very cleverly managed that without any coercion. Uh, but that, that, I mean, it has been written extensively about Homa Mahutfar has written and Nadia talked about it, so I'm not going through that. However, when the... Iranian uh, authorities started talking about um, bringing the population down, reducing the rate of population, people having fewer children, being very sensitive to people's cultural attitudes. They also said, but our policies are not just about reducing a population, but about the treatment of infertility as well. So they allowed certain, in their health policies, certain areas where you know, for people would get treatment for infertility. So within the 10 years when the Iranians were implementing the population policies, these new technologies came about. And um, the doctors returned from, especially from the UK, to Iran and started IVF treatment, treatment and infertility. But that was just between the wife and husband. So nobody queried that. But gradually, the third party donation came about of a sperm and egg donation and later embryo donation. Now, this actually caused a great deal of problem. And as Marcia Inhorn, who is the leading anthropologist for infertility in the Arab Middle East, has written extensively, uh, and it's true also of the case of Iran, without the approval of religious leaders, rulers, uh, the um, implementation of the um, IVF treatment would not have been possible, because this is a matter which... Is related to procreation and affects the lineage, Nasab in, in, uh, in the family. And very much Nasab comes from um, the sperm is related to blood and how you inherit. And if you bring in another third party, a third party into this donation, you are confusing basically the lineage and lines of, of inheritance and family and everything else. Actually, Morgan Clark was not here today. He's also written about Islam and New Kinship, his very good book, and that also discusses exactly the same ideas. So um, the Iranian... uh, Iran is a theocracy, so we have got religious rulers, and our law is the same as the Sharia law. Therefore, everything has got to be followed by the Sharia rules. Um, But there is a distinction we have to make in Iran. Uh, We have the senior religious rulers whose word is the ultimate word when they give a uh, ruling, but unlike the Sunni world, in Iran there are various senior clerics whose authority as far as religion is concerned is as important as those of the ruler, senior uh, ruling, uh, political religion rulings. Therefore, if Ayatollah Khamenei says something, there are several other equally senior Ayatollahs who may not agree with him. And therefore, there are various sources of emulation, source of imitation in Iran, and people can choose who is their source of emulation. I mean, if I don't like what Ayatollah Khamenei says, I can choose another ruler, a source of emulation and go to him. So in that sense, we have to make a distinction that when Rulings were given but fatwas were issued, fatwas are religious edicts, were issued to allow third-party donation, which I'll explain in a minute how it was. Uh, it doesn't mean that the entire society and entire religious leaders, are all in agreement with these things. Um, but what happened was in the early days when the IVF, uh, the third-party donation came to the country, The medical practitioners realized that they wanted to start using this, but without religious approval, they didn't know how to use it. They were not allowed to do it because they would be breaking rules because that would be seen as incest or adultery to use an egg and sperm of somebody who is not married to the couple. So one of the leading religious practitioners in this area is the head of a research institute called Avicina Institute, and he has been actually setting the agenda throughout. Very cleverly, he invited a number of senior authorities who are allowed to uh, interpret the Quran and come up with new solutions about new problems, which is called Ijtihad in Islam. Now, the Sunni and the Shia have both used, make of Ijtihad, but the Sunni use it very rarely, and they don't have as many sources of authority. Usually there are one or two or three sources of authority who can issue these rulings and the fatwas. Whereas the Shi'a use make extensive use of it, being very pragmatical sort of people. And they often interpret uh, the Quran to do with new solutions, and come up with giving Ijtihad. Therefore, this man, uh, who's the head of this research institute, organized conferences to begin with and got a number of the senior authorities to actually go through the question of whether the use of third party donation would breach any rules of, of um, incest and adultery and marriage and would affect the sanctity of the marriage. Obviously, he must have invited those rulers who were sympathetic to (laughs) to the cause. So um, then a book came out of it in 2001. So as early as 2001, a book came out in which um, it was said that actually the third-party donation within Islam, uh, especially egg donation, could be allowed, but it should happen within the marriage. So... That one mechanism was itch to hot that they were the interpretation, independent reasoning, that uh, the, the practitioners made use of to actually introduce the third-party donation, and the second one was all right. Well, how can we donate within the marital union without breaking any rule? You make use now, they, they be, again, the Shia have got this unique practice of temporary marriage, which I think you all know about. Temporary marriage is a form of marriage whereby a man and a woman can enter into a marriage agreement which has got a time limit on it, which could be from one hour to 99 years. You agree on it. Often you don't even need a witness. So that is another sort of... It. So the way the practitioners actually legitimized... Uh, the use of third party donation was we said, okay, if a woman is infertile, we find an egg donor. The egg donor gets married into a temporary marriage with the husband of the infertile woman and um, donates her egg without any sexual intercourse taking place. And this is, she, she is his legitimate wife and therefore. Um, uh, then they, for two or three days or as long as it takes until the egg is fertilized, and then the egg is planted inside the woman the infertile woman's womb, and that's the end of the story. Of course, the sh- same thing could be a reverse for a woman, but because women are not allowed to have so many husbands, then if a, woman, if a man was infertile and they wanted to make use of the infer- another man's sper- sperm donation, the woman of the infertile man would have to divorce her husband wait for three and a half months then that again the temporary marriage was arranged the sperm of the man was given uh, and then the woman would then divorce the marriage would lapse and then remarry her own husband but this proved a bit too complicated to do and at the same time the embryo donation came about and for embryo donation, no amount of independent reasoning could actually justify the, the embryo donation. Therefore, they had to pass a law. So a law was passed into. Whereas these other forms of temporary marriage and egg and sperm donation were based on fatwas, on these religious edicts, which legitimized it. The embryo donation had to have a law, and the embryo had to come, again, from a married couple. Everything has to be done within the marital union. So that, that also... I, I, was so that, so the many couples with infertile husbands uh, went for embryo donation. All of this has got to be absolutely as a gift. But, but costs are built, and you know, I won't go into all of that. So this is how uh, this was legitimized. And Iran, where it stands today, I think it is ahead of most countries in the world in the use of assisted reproductive technologies. We have sperm donation, egg donation, embryo donation, sex selection now, and um, stem cell research, all of this. And the reason why they have been allowed to do it is because the Islamic ethics are overruling any other kind of ethics. The bioethics are ruled by Islamic ethics. And there comes a point when... uh, Everybody realizes these Islamic ethics are not sufficient. In fact, the medical authorities, as a source of authoritative knowledge, is leading on, and the mullahs feel the religious authorities, they are behind. They are actually racing to keep up, to keep pace, with all the changes that have come into the society, and the practitioners, doctors, have taken into their own hands to lead on, and then they are dragging, basically, these, these mullahs. But all of that has now been actually accepted in society, except for sperm donation, which is still contentious. Because then in this conference which took place, which was a so groundbreaking point, was in 2001. In, in late 1999, Ayatollah Khomeini was asked a series of questions, and he gave his fatwas that actually donation can happen, egg donation and sperm donation, As long as there was no touch or gaze, if you don't gaze at the woman and you don't touch her, donation is allowed. And they asked her, is a sperm donation the same? He said, it's the same. So therefore, in a way, he legitimized. And many clinics in Iran have got his fatwa on their mantelpiece to, to sort of show that they are legitimately making use of another man's sperm. However, this caused a lot of uproar. And it went to the guardian council. And the governmental and semi-sponsored clinics don't do sperm donation. It's private clinics who are doing it, and they don't advertise it too, obviously. But anyway, this, this is really the background. Um, I, I'm not going, I may not have time to go into all the um, details of uh, why. Um, I think you're, probably most of you are familiar with the fact that uh, Islam... Men and women's relationship in Islam are actually dictated by, are divided men and women into two categories of mahram and non-mahram. Mahram Mahram is the category of people who you can't marry and therefore you can have close contact with. Non-mahram are those people who are your potential marriage partners and therefore you can't come into contact and... I mean, in theory, you have got to cover as a woman your face, and you mustn't be left alone and come into contact. Therefore, you can understand the severity of of, of something like third-party donation and why they were worried about this kind of relaxing, these rules. So, um, now, in Iran, things were changing very, very fast as these technologies came into practice. In 2004, when I first started doing my research, I went to the clinics. People often brought their own donors. Women brought their sisters as egg donors. Men brought their brothers as a sperm donors. And nobody thought anything about it. They also were very religious. They wanted to have the approval of the religious uh, source of emulation. Say they would go to them and say, look, am I allowed? Is that all right? Is that Islamic? Can we go and sort of make use of these technologies? And if their source of emulation said, you can't, then they went to somebody else who said, yes, you can. And therefore, it was like that point, I, although I visited many, many clinics, I never came across um, a cross-gender donation. In other words, brothers and sisters didn't give egg or sperm to each other. It was sisters giving eggs and brothers giving sperm. But a few years later, three years on, I went back and brothers and sisters had started giving sperm and egg to each other and making embryos. Mm. Why? Because the way it was legitimized by saying as long as there is no touch or gaze, donation is allowed, they weren't breaking any Islamic rules. Right. And then surrogacy came about. Surrogacy, again, based on the same laws as the embryo donation, to begin with, finding surrogate mothers was very difficult uh, because uh, you know, unmarried women didn't want to be seen to be pregnant. I mean, the, the girls who had not been married could not be carrying a baby. But again, all that's to know, every year I went back to Iran, things had been accepted, things had been changed. But the more things changed, the more there were th- the choices that the patients made, threw up more the um, existing kinship relations. They mm-hmm. always would, you know, so don't go back to their relative. They would always, the preference would be, oh, this is my sister in Russia, she has got three lovely children, I want her eggs. And no matter how much the practitioners would argue with them that, you know, you can't actually, having them genetically, this is not actually something that you should be doing, but people just, that fell into their sort of deaf ears because that was in the long term. The immediate need was to be producing a child. So anyway, after all this, um, now we are on to so many years of these practices in Iran, some of the children who are the results of their donations have grown up. And the, as I said, the entire um, reasoning was initially that we want to create happy family. So this rhetoric of happy family creation can, could be now tested on whether how many happy families there had been. Now, as long as the IVF, state IVF between a wife and husband is concerned, I am very happy to say thousands of happy families have been made. Because while the marriages could have ended in misery and divorce and men marrying a second wife and all that, these have been actually very successful. But third party egg and sperm donation has created major problems. And um, I I was doing other kind of research work. And I came across people who had been actually involved in that kind of third party donations. And in my ordinary kind of research in Iran, uh, I never came across the cases and saw the problem as clearly as when here I was writing expert reports for women who were seeking asylum here as refugees. And this is the case of these two women I have chosen, which are by no means rarity. It's the tip of the iceberg. And to show you, one is a case of a sperm donation, one is a case of egg donation. And I want to just share their case stories with you here. Um, And um, before doing that, you know, I was just uh, thinking of um, talking about um, these cases. I've written that the point is that these kind of cases, which I'm going to share with you, do not come to the fore frequently because those who are affected by them, especially women, are often willing parties to the perpetuating and protecting the cultural values to which they belong by conforming to what is expected of them by their social group. While such motivations do not reduce the emotional desire for having a child, it is above all the sense of belonging and identity. Uh, That is the driving force for -such, such submission and silent cooperation. Women in this study appear to have submitted in their own so-called volition to the hardship of undergoing IVF treatment to continue their shares to the social reproduction of the family and social group, and in doing so, they have been greatly assisted by modern reproductive technologies. Maya Unitan Kumar, who so some of you may know, in a study of female-selected abortion in India shows that I'm quoting: technologies, reproductive technologies, in themselves, do not bring about social transformation, but it is in how they are made socially meaningful that their power lies. And Thompson, in her analysis of the feminist theorization of infertility, illustrates the dilemma created by the modern infertility treatment technologies as follows. I'm quoting from her, it's a long one. She says, on the one hand, the burden of involuntary childlessness is considered especially heavy for women, and prominent feminists call for it to be taken seriously as a feminist issue. On the other hand, feminists are also interested in disrupting the gendered role expectations and the essentialist connection between motherhood and women's identity that greatly intensify infertile women's suffering. Contemporary infertility and its treatment are conceptualized and structured on a strongly coupled, ultra-heterosexual, consumer oriented, normative nuclear family scenario. When successful, treatment enables women to re-inscribe themselves into that logic. The paradox of infertility for feminism, then, is this. Feminists are well-placed to understand the special burden of involuntary childlessness, but they are ambivalent about supporting women who seek infertility treatment because it seems to lend support to conventional gender roles and gendered stratification. Also, very briefly, um, the clinics which are um, exercising in fertility treatment are private clinics, they are public clinics. The spon- government-sponsored ones are really very basic. Some of them, even, they don't do genetic screening tests. Uh, before they actually carry on. But the private ones, some of them are very advanced. And in 2004, I walked into one of these private clinics, and in the reception area, there were at least 50 men and women all sitting there. And I saw this giant screen with the voice of the doctor, in this, on, and I, the fertilization of the egg was shown on this giant screen, and the dog with the name of the woman whose egg was being fertilized written on the screen and the doctor explaining, this is Mrs. such and such and this is what I am doing and I was absolutely flabbergasted I said, am I in the Islamic Republic of Iran, you know when women are not even allowed to sit next to each other and here's the inside of a woman is being showed how the egg is fertilized and so I asked the midwife who was sort of showing me around and I said what do your patients think of such a thing, she said We think it's good for them to learn this kind of things. It was obvious, you know, they are trying to actually educate their patients into what it is and what is happening. Then I went to another clinic, exactly the same thing happened, and I was talking to the director of the clinic, and I said, surely, you know, you shouldn't be allowed to show the inside of a woman. And all And he sort of first made a joke and said, well, Islam has never said we can't look into the inside of a woman. They said you can't look at the outside. (laughs) (laughs) and then when he saw my amazement he said no well to tell you the truth we have never even thought about this all we are anxious about is to show our patients a infertility could be a man's fault this is what we are saying again and again to men and b to show them scientifically what is happening so the clinics have actually launched into trying to teach people educate them into issues on infertility and This year I was in Iran in the summer, and people come and sit on the television and talk about donation and egg donation as a mere fact. You know, it's just become almost history, all that. Um, But I'll come back to the effect of this sort of... um, They say we are trying to create a culture, the doctors say, by sort of showing these people that infertility can be a biomedical problem. Um... So, now, to go back to my cases, one is a story of a woman who I call Batul. This is with full permission of these two women refugees that I told their stories. In fact, they were very happy for me. They said, go and write it so the whole world knows about our story. One is about the story um, of a woman who is 45 years old. She was then... who comes from a highly religious and conservative family. She was 17 when her father forced her to marry a man several years older than herself. She had no say in the decision. Her husband was an engineer and went to work in the United Arab Emirates. In 1988, by the time she was 22 years old and had not conceived, her husband decided to take her to the UK for treatment. And in in this country, it had only just started the treatment. The couple received gametes. Intrafalopian Transfer Assisted Reproduction, which is called GIFT for sure. But Batul did not speak any English and did not understand anything about the procedures she underwent. So her husband took charge of the entire negotiations. The treatment proved successful, and she became pregnant. They returned to the Emirates, where she gave birth to non-identical triplet girls in 1989. The triplets had blonde hair, two with brown eyes, and the third one with green eyes. Whereas the husband is completely dark, she's dark. It was obvious that the husband was not the biological father of the children. At such finding, he accused Batool of having slept with the doctor in the clinic and became violent and started beating her. They returned to Iran where he told the members of his and her family that she had slept with the doctor and the children were bastards. Batool's father and brother sided with the husband and became abusive and threatened to kill her and the children because they were non-Muslims and because she had brought shame upon the family. Battle was summoned by the security forces to account for what had happened at the clinic in the UK. During this time, she was subjected to extreme violence by her husband. Um who beat and injured her regularly over the years. In addition to the routine beatings, she suffered various fractures and burns, including two broken legs, a sewing machine thrown at her head, which knocked her unconscious, burns with hot oil, being frozen by having buckets of ice poured over her. The children were also beaten regularly and called bastards. Mina, the daughter with green eyes, developed a heart problem when she was 18 months old and underwent an operation. After three years, Batul managed to get a divorce, but the court did not instruct the father to pay any maintenance for the bastards. Legally, he could have claimed custody of the children, but did not do so and was happy for her to keep the children, but did not do it as his duty to contribute financially towards their upkeep. Over the following five years, Mina had three heart operations. Every time, Batul had great difficulty in getting Mina admitted to the hospital because no hospital would admit her without the father's permission and confirmation that she was his daughter. You, you need permission to know who the father is. None of the members of the father's family were prepared to help with the illegitimate children. Batul had to make a living by sewing and doing various jobs. As the children were. Growing up, they were subjected to constant abuse at school because the father turned up and told the school that these were bastards and were Christians. The children were bullied and once thrown out um, and told to go to a school for Christian children. The appearance of blonde hair and green eyes in Mina's case made it incredible that they were not Muslims or from an Iranian father. Batul kept changing location and moving from one school to another, only to find that her husband had turned up again and asked the school to throw them out. Eventually, they moved to Batul's native village. And Batul managed to convince the head teacher that her children were Muslims. But the bullying continued by other children. Mina, who I met recently. I met her two years ago, that daughter. added that in order to be allowed to stay at school, she even joined the Basij, the Revolutionary Guards' wing of the sort so, they, of... They are now formalized the Basij into the Revolutionary Guard, but they were basically the thugs of the regime. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they were this wing in, at school, and Mino said, well, you know, to, to say, look, I'm one of you, I joined the Basij. Um, Um, Finally, Batul's husband told her that if she wanted his help with getting the children to schools or hospitals, she should remarry him. Batul seemed to have little choice but to accept this, but although she was not married to him, he refused to support the family financially. Throughout this time, the only person who supported Batul, both financially and morally, was her mother, despite the disapproval of her husband, Batul's father. After the renewal of the marriage, the husband did not live at home, but came home occasionally and without warning. Batul was lonely and miserable and met another man, fell in love with him, and they started an affair. One day when he was visiting her, the husband came back home accompanied by three men from the security forces and caught Batul and her lover in bed. The men were to be witnesses to adultery and duly took photographs and took Batul and her lover to their headquarters. She was held for two days in a dark cell and, while in custody, was raped by the officers. Both she and her lover were sentenced to be stoned to death. By now, Batul's father was dead and her mother sold her house to pay a heavy bail for her temporary release while waiting to be stoned. Batul hid two of her children and fled from Iran and came to the UK with Mina to allow her to have a fourth urgent operation for her heart. On arrival, she applied for asylum. <clears throat> anyway, I, I went go into the rest of her. I, I had to write an expert report for this woman to be given asylum, and she was given asylum. And two years later, <coughs> I contacted them with the permission of the solicitor and her permission. And she said, look, I'm going back to Iran uh, because my husband has is trying to smuggle my two other daughters to the United Arab Emirates for prostitution. And a man had turned up with a gun at one of the girl's head. Uh, And I said, well, how can you go to Iran? And um, uh, she said, well, I've made arrangements, because her her name is on the Revolutionary Court uh, for stoning. So if, if they catch her in Iran, they will stone her. And I have not lost contact with her. I don't know what has happened since then because, you know, I lost her telephone number. Her daughter came and saw me, and she is now reading human rights, a degree in human rights in in London. So that was the case of a sperm donation, and I assure you this is not the only case. There are two kind of cases in men who have made use of sperm, some who have tried to hide it and make it pass as their own. The other ones are the ones who have agreed for a sperm donor themselves, but once the child is born, either they become violent towards the woman and the child, or they themselves start suffering psychological problems and I've talked to a lot of doctors in Iran who say they have got a lot of patients with children or the infertile men who have agreed. so this uh, sperm donation causes more trouble than egg donation because, as I said, willing are often women are often willing cooperators you know and also, as I will say more at length in my conclusion, women take part in this creation of a child, because it is their body, they nurture the child, whereas men become just the passive watchers, infertile men, that uh, you know, they, it is a kind of transgressive um, a transgression, you know, it becomes a sort of a symbolic uh, incest, if you like, or adultery in their mind, so uh, this is what they really can't accept, because they take absolutely no part in this procreation. Um, right, so... Uh, so in the case of Batul, the fact that her husband had been shown not to have been the biological father of the children dealt such a devastating blow to him and made him lose face so seriously that for the following 20 years he made Batul and her three daughters' lives a misery and has kept them under constant threat. The recent investigation at the clinic where Batul was treated for infertility here um, indicated that the clinic had explained fully to Battle's husband because the solicitors were following the case for the court here. And it became very clear that the clinic had actually explained to the husband what was involved. And this was going to be a third-party donation, and he was the infertile party. Um, so there is one of the interesting thing that the M- Mina, Battle's daughter, told me. She said, two of my uncles, my father's brothers, are now married, and none of them has any children. And it's only now that it's beginning to dawn on them that maybe infertility is with us, the problem is with us. But that was not actually the case. Now, the other case is the case of Sahar. Sahar is another woman who I wrote her expert report for. And she was, um, she resorted to egg donation. I won't read her full story here because we haven't got time. But basically, um, she had been raped by her first fiance gave birth before marriage, and then her family broke up the marriage because before they were married, the fiancé had raped her. She gave birth to a disabled child, and the father's family took the child. Actually, he's not a very important person in the system in in Iran, but she says, I haven't got any contact with him. So she remarried a man who was infertile and then divorced, and then she fell in love and married a man, um, and... um, soon found out that the husband was very violent, was beating her. So she thought, if I have both the children, maybe this will sort of help. And because she was 41 years old, she resorted to egg donation. Due to her age, she resorted to third-party egg donation. To do so, a temporary marriage arrangement was used between the donor and her husband at the fertility clinic. The egg donor was married to her husband for three days until the doctor was satisfied that the egg was fertilized. Sahar became pregnant and gave birth to to twins. But as soon as she came home, she was subjected to so much violence by her husband that... uh, No, when she was pregnant, she lost one of the twins because of the beatings that she got. And anyway, the other one... uh, Then um, they came to to the UK when the husband said, I'm a Christian, sought asylum, and asked Sahar Sahar to go and give evidence for her that he was a Christian. She refused. And he beat her up so badly that she ended up in the hospital. And the authorities here realized she was a victim of violence. And they offered her asylum, which she didn't take. She said, no, I want to go back to Iran. And as soon as she got back to Iran, the husband had turned the whole thing around, told the authorities that she had faked Papers for him to, as if he had been seeking asylum. Anyway, she ended up in the Revolutionary Court through the husband's manipulation. Husband was an influential man, he was the mayor of a city in one of the provinces in Iran. And again, you know, the, the Revolutionary Court summoned her. What he wanted, then he took the child, they divorced, he took the child and wouldn't allow her to see the child. So he was using the child as a pawn every time you come and give me one of your houses, give me so much money if you want to see your child. And in the end, the Revolutionary Court started summoning her based on his accusations, and she had to run away, and she's not here. But she hasn't seen her child. She doesn't know where the child is. And for the past five, six years, she just has no news. So the happy family, actually, was not formed. So there are many, many examples of this kind. Um, Now, I want to go into the discussion of all this, you know, and and sort of say, I have tried to examine the implications of the use of third-party donation of sperm and egg on the life of some families who have gone home with a child. I've considered whether the use of the -the state-of-the-art reproductive technologies have altered the values that are the driving force behind the reproductive decisions infertile couples make. The effect of the donor child on the parents and the wider social group was also considered. To this end, two cases were selected, which I talked to you about. These cases are extreme ones, but by no means unique or even rare. The findings presented are supported by a larger study of donor technologies that I've done over five, six years now. Several points emerge from the combination of the studies mentioned above. In general, men and women's approaches to ARTs have been shown to differ and the way donor children are treated depends upon whose biological child they are in the family. Women seem to have invariably welcomed the egg donation and have submitted to the treatment and cherished the child afterwards. In some of the cases of egg donation, the couple returned with the same donor to have another child. Such reactions, viewed in their cultural context, support the suggestion that the way the ARTs have been used reflect the user's understanding of what constitutes kinship, families, lineage, and relationships. Inhorn, Baker, and others have written extensively about this. In the case of the Iranian donor parents and children, although in Shia Islam a child takes his lineage from both parents, it belongs to the father, whose lineage takes precedence over that of the mother. Zibamir Hosseini, Shiri, and have written about this. It's therefore understandable why the clerics and jurists went to such trouble to establish this lineage of donor children before allowing third-party donation. However, the prevailing cultural values have proved more powerful and have undermined the legal and religious endorsement. Um, The use of third-party donation provides ample scope for a reinforcement of the patriarchal values in relation to reproduction. This mirrors the experience of Iranian infertile women. Uh, so it follows that the donor children's future depends on whether they are the result of egg or sperm donation. And the intervention of reproductive technologies has shown in various studies to increase the collective social control over women's bodies. Unitan, Emily Martin, Picheski, Thompson, Inhorn have extensively written about these issues. In general, the Middle Eastern, in Middle Eastern countries, pressure on married couples to have children starts from the first day of marriage. Iran is no exception to this. And while a woman's personal desire to have a child is not disputed, studies at clinics in Iran show time and again that women undergo third party donation under immense pressure from the kin group, predominantly from that of their in-laws. Um, Part of the studies I've done, I've worked on early marriages under 15 years of age. And when I went to these fertility treatment clinics, I asked them, have you had any children, basically, women who have been brought here under the age of 15 for being infertile? And as you, you know, one has to have been married for one year before you are considered infertile. And they sort of went into their computers and tapped and looked and came up with a considerable percentage of the girls who at the age of 13 or 14 had been brought considered as infertile. So there's great, great pressure. Actually, the in-laws see it as their duty to get involved. It is Reproduction is a matter for the collective family and kin group. It's not just a matter of individualistic But what the reproductive technologies are doing, they are allowing more and more of the couples to do that in secrecy. So I'm going to explain that, you know, that your infertility is not any longer obvious when you resort to these technologies. Um, so, um, so, the, the Tehran clinics, Infertility Clinics confirmed the extent of coercion by in-laws on women to seek infertility treatment. Finally, as Uniton's study in the case of um, lack of choices for female selective abortions in India explains, she says, this is a quote, This is not an autonomous choice at all, but by focusing on the freedom of choice alone, we are foreclosing the ability to understand the more complex aspects of how women's agency works in collectively-orientated patriarchal contexts. Unitan also says that the conjugal context where notions of self and control over one's body are both collectively constituted as they are individually desired, crafted, and experienced, the willingness of women to take part in the use of biotechnologies is often a reflection of wider social processes in which women continually participate, which serves their own interests as those of the wider social group to which they belong. Um, Now, that is um, something which I think is important. The previous studies on the causes of rejection of donor spend by infertile men have convincingly argued that in the Middle East, with predominantly patriarchal values in relation to reproduction and fertility, men have a strong desire to maintain their lineage and reject the idea of sperm donation. I've written about that, Marcia Inhorn has written, Morgan Clark has written, we all had said the same thing. However, I'm going to contradict myself. The combination of research from the largest study of third-party sperm donation carried out between 2004 and 2009, provide unexpected insights into the behavior of infertile men who report, who resort to sperm donors. There is a question of whether in reality it is the biological infertility that matters more to infertile men or the fact that they are seen to be infertile and not fulfilling their social role and losing their identity and status in society. Key to such use, however, remains anonymity. As long as the secret is not revealed, men with strong conservative values in this study seem to have been willing to compromise the purity of their biological lineage when faced with having to choose between remaining childless or using a stranger's sperm. ARTs, in the case of sperm donation, have generated two kinds of responses by infertile men, which I explained to you that one. And... um, So, really, basically, the more research I have done, the more I realize that it is not the manhood and the masculinity and the virility which matter in this kind. It's to be seen to be fertile. And in the old days, men would resort to their brothers. I mean, we do know how often it happened that secretly a man asked his brother to impregnate his wife. But now he doesn't do to do that. The new technologies are helping him. He can go secretly have a sperm donor, as long as they are not found out, if all is well. But when it is, that has increased the violence so much, the case of sperm donation against women. So I read, if I may, just a little short conclusion. The data in this chapter have shown, has shown that the use of ARTs has led to a reinforcement of cultural values among the infertile couples rather than altering them. Further ARTs, uh, furthermore, ARTs have been a contributive factor in the broadening of the gender gap among infertile couples of a certain social group. The findings of the earlier data clearly indicated that the efforts of the practitioners to break some of the cultural molds and alter the attitudes towards infertility have had limited effects on the recipients, especially in the case of men. The deeply rooted values on fertility-infertility acting as cultural barriers to further penetration and acceptance of ARTs have shown not to have been dislodged beyond their immediate use. To date, infertile man-seeking treatments seem to be so imbued in their cultural understanding of what constitutes masculinity that the clinic's education has little significant effect on them. The use of reproductive technologies and the information which goes with them become a medium which may help these men achieve their own ideas of masculinity rather than transform them. In addition to highlighting the role of ARTs in deepening the gender gap among certain layers of society, some unanticipated facts in cases of third-party gamut donation have also emerged. One such finding shows that the ground is beginning to shift for many infertile men to move towards a compromise on the purity of their lineage in favor of being seen to be fertile. Um, the other one was, as I, I told you, it is the fact that men become such passive... Uh, Participant or hardly participants, sort of observers of these reproductive technologies, um, that um, this causes increases of violence. As Bernard Haddold, in his studies of infertility in Austria, talks, he said the third party um, donation for women is a process which is an ensemble of body parts, machines, techniques to which women unavoidably make a corporeal contribution and in which they fully participate. In this sense, women's relationship with their donor children differ to, from that of men and make them cherish and treat the children as their own, even though they may be the result of donor eggs. Finally, the future of men and women uses of third party gamut donation and that of their children will therefore continue to be shaped by the fragile balance, balance between these empowered infertile men and their wives, who are at the receiving end of their husbands' shortcomings. It must be expected that as these technologies continue to reach a higher number of users and the range of class, education, and generation of their users continues to broaden, further research will be needed to assess their impact on kinship, gender relations, donor children and family and on the ongoing dialogue between these technologies and their users.